史长河。十二。Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely that the West is leading. We don't have enough tanks. We don't have enough vessels. We don't have enough planes to bring chip productions here to the U.S. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, as France mops up the ashes of the burnt-out banlieue, data shows national food spending is down 30% year on year. It's not quite les misérables, but right across Europe, it seems that hungry might turn out to be the dominant political mode of 2023. China is building a trade superweapon. They've just created a brand new foreign relations department that will have the scope to take charge of tariffs and imports. It feels like we've arrived at the mutually assured destruction phase of a potential trade war. The question is, will anybody be bold enough to punch in the launch codes? A shock German poll suggests the AfD. Is within three points of the centre-right CDU, with the centre-left SPD of Olaf Scholz lagging behind both. It seems as though the next German election coalition could be between the right and the hard right. So, will the country be able to hold on to its historic cordon sanitaire, or is this the moment when even the eternally dull German politics finally gets spicy? But first, let them eat little. This week. The big news, really, certainly on social media, has been the riots in France and the social unrest in almost every major city and town in France. I think at first, perhaps some people like myself thought that it was that French thing.、Uh, I hate to be stereotypical about this, but you know there is this impression that almost every summer the French are protesting, on strike, rioting. Uh, over something or other. However, this does seem to be a lot more serious, and I think it has implications not just for the stability of the French state and the coming politics of the French state, but also more broadly、uh, for Europe as a whole. So these specific、uh, riots and 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 and, bout, and this specific bout of social unrest, the proximate cause was the shooting of a young an Algerian Frenchman. Uh, by the police,、uh, which precipitated an outburst of anger. However, things seem to be getting really out of control at the moment. The riots and looting and violence simply hasn't stopped. There's been huge destruction of、uh, property and possessions. There's been of injuries as well.、Uh, it seems that there are gangs involved. But beyond that, now the French police have come out and said that this is unacceptable. The political response has been unacceptable. The police have said that they feel they're now at war, a kind of civil war of sorts, if you like, and that they are insisting that the government provide them with the the legal and also physical security to go out and deal with these protesters and restore order. But after that, after that's done, they've said that they're going to go into opposition against the government. So it really seems at the moment that certain parts of the French state are starting to break ranks with the political response. That、uh, Macron 
perhaps has not lost control at the moment, but might be on the verge of losing control. And I think beyond that, and, and something perhaps you might speak to, although the proximate cause was, of course, a, an instance of police violence, I'm not going to comment whether it was justified or unjustified, but it was a violent act. I think there are underlying causes to this. All of Europe is, has, for the last decade and a half, suffered from stagnant wages. We've now got significant and uh, consistent and persistent inflation. And although the headline figures for inflation might say X, there are certain areas where inflation is clearly a lot higher. And one of those areas is food inflation. This affects the lower stratas of society first. And for right or for wrong, French citizens of North African heritage tend to be at the lower end of the economic hierarchy, so to speak. And I actually think that this is something that could apply more broadly to Europe. Uh, we on Multipolarity um, spoke about the uh, civil unrest earlier in the year, the proximate cause of which was uh, reservoir draining and caused civil unrest in France. We've also spoken about uh, strike action in Germany, which has been highly unusual over the last two decades. Uh, in Britain, we have had the greatest amount of industrial action since the uh, 1980s. And so I, th I think while, obviously, while this is all going on and, and we're seeing these kind of horrific videos on social media of the, of the, of the violence and the looting and the, um, the, the anger on the French streets, that's clearly our focus. But I think it's important to look at both the underlying causes of that, not just the proximate causes, and also the broader picture across Europe as well. It's good that you highlighted the fact that this isn't the first time we've been speaking about France. Um, as you say, we spoke about the um, the protests that were in uh, response. Uh, well, the first first wave of them was in response to the first wave of the wave of the very large ones was in response to the pension reforms. And I think at the time we were trying to make clear that these were unusually large. Like the French liked their protests. Okay, we 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 accept that. But they, these were unusually large. These were the largest seen since 1995. And then you saw these unrelated protests, the one that you referred to there about a reservoir. And it, this this protest over a reservoir got really violent. I mean, the police were were seen going around fields with um on kind of quad bikes and. Yeah, I did. It was a kind of light, a modern day light cavalry charge against uh, against uh, squares of uh, infantry protesters, as I remember. Yeah, that's right. So I think we were quite frustrated at the time that people weren't seeing the connection between the economic problems that are emerging in Europe and what was going on. Well, now we have the largest riots in France. I mean, we'll have to count the the amount of destruction afterwards, but my sense will be the, the largest in history, at least in recent history. They've really been shocking. I mean, you can't have watched what's going on and not be shocked by it. Um, as you say, the institutional response has been kind of scary, <laughs> feels a little unstable. Um, but, you know, w we need to point out that this is, take, this is not taking place against the backdrop of, you know, neutral economic times. The data is showing that uh, French food prices are up about 22%, and French food consumption is down from its peak uh, 17%. And just to give some sense of that, the data going back to 1980, there's never been a decline 
of anything like that before. Food prices just go up and up and up, and they fluctuate a little bit, maybe 3 or 4%, and then they go back. You even look at in recessions like 2008, 2009, you don't see that much of an impact on food prices. And it's pretty obvious why, because food prices for food consumption, I should say, food consumption is the uh, last thing that you're going to cut from your budget. So what does it even mean that people are cutting 17% of their food budget? Um, it's almost matching the price to the T. Now, it doesn't mean that people are consuming physically 17%, you know, fifth less food. Uh, some of it's going to be substitution effects. So you're going to buy cheaper food, I guess. But like even the cheaper food that you're buying is lowering the uh, the the standard of your average kind of plate at dinner. And then on top of that, some of it is just food that isn't bought. So like maybe they aren't, maybe the French people aren't consuming a fifth less food, but they might be consuming 10% less food, which is quite a lot. Again, this is a completely unprecedented drop in food consumption since 1980. And, and between 1980 and today and recently, food consumption has just been going up and up and up. And if you've lived long enough, you probably know what that means. You know, supermarkets are offering you a better selection. What's on your table now versus what's on your table 20 years ago is a lot better. And we're just reverting in that sense. I think it's important to say that of course, you know, food being more expensive is not an excuse to go out and, you know, loot a jewelry shop and, and, and smash up a few inner city streets. And nor, in fact, is the shooting of a member of your community by police. However, we also have to be clear that, as you say, when standards of living suddenly fall and starts focusing in areas like food you know we're not talking about standards of living as in i you know i can't afford a pair of tommy hilfiger chinos i'm gonna have to go and buy the amazon version of chinos instead we're talking about putting food on the table and poor people spend a large percentage of their post-tax income on food on food and accommodation so while headline inflation in france might be like four percent food inflation might be as high as 20%. And 20% is a big deal when that's a large percentage of your total spend every month. And the proximate cause of the Arab Spring was rising grain prices, rising prices for bread. Same in Mexico uh, with regards to uh, corn flour and tortillas, right? And traditionally, this sort of reduction where it really not just impacts on your standard of living in that you can only go to a restaurant four times a month instead of twice a week. But when it starts, you know, impacting on the food you're putting on the table, then unhappiness with the political system and general frustration and anger tends to build and build and build. And then you get these little proximate causes like uh, somebody from your community is shot by the police or, or, you, you know, some kind of bad action by, you know, a little instance of of poor action from the government that would have passed in better times, but kind of is a spark on the kindling for social unrest. This sort of thing will happen. And of course, in each country where it does happen, it's going to take on its own characteristics. So of course, France in recent years has had a lot of 
uh, social unrest and a lot of unrest among its, um, I'm not sure whether to say migrant community, because of course, I'm, I'm not altogether certain that, you know, the French state would view Algerians as migrants in the same way that we might in Britain because of their uh, constitutional system. But you know what I mean? It, you know, it has been concentrated within North African groups. And of course, there's a big trade union movement in France where, you know, again, you get lots of uh, strikes and protests in Italy, in Germany, in Britain, in Spain, these things might have different characteristics. But I think the point that we're making is that ultimately the, they are manifestations of the same problem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, France, I think, might be one of the more volatile countries in Europe because of what you just mentioned. I mean, we didn't, we didn't re- mention it last time because the, um, the, the issue, at least the nominal issue, was, was pension reforms and then reservoir building, which was just bizarre, really. But of course, there is this underlying tension. Most of the uh, uh, Algerian diaspora aren't even migrants anymore. They're, they're, some of them are second generation um, French citizens. But, you know, they've had a very hard time integrating this group uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which being the extremely secular nature of the French state, which started off as a kind of an anti-clerical thing. Uh, basically trying to minimize the impact uh, or the influence of the Catholic Church. And now it's creating problems with the Muslim community. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if we, we remember, but in 2021, there was a, a letter saying that, that, that there could be civil war from some senior French soldiers. Now, it was a bit hyperbolic. Um, I don't think there's going to be civil war in France. But the fact that this... Um, sentiment is there i mean we don't feel that way in britain (laughs) we don't think uh that there's going to be civil war but you hear this stuff come out of france and so as you say you know that's the kindling and then there's a spark and you know this is what we see i will say that the political situation is about to change dramatically in france a poll that came out in april this is prior to the riots like a few months back showed that marine le pen would beat president macron by 55 to 45, which is a, a, you know, beat them handily, really. Just to remind readers that the year prior, Macron defeated Le Pen 58 to 41. Um, <laughs> a really handy defeat. That is, that is flipped on its head now. And I'm not sure how much of that can be put down to the unpopularity of, of President Macron. Definitely, I'd say after these after these riots, it's going to play right into the Rassemblement National's hands. So we're seeing that these crises are driving electoral changes very rapidly. Now, there's not another French election for quite some time. There was one last year. I think it's a five-year cycle in France. But, you know, with some of that stuff coming out of the police unions and stuff, you'd wonder if... Uh, I don't know if what system in place is to, to call an early election or something like that, but Macron is not... He does not seem stable at all. So I, I, I think I think France will be one to watch. But as you say, I, I fear that unless we can get the economic problems under control, it may be a canary in the coal mine. Not to say that we'll have mass riots everywhere. I don't think that. But as you say, each country will experience these tensions in their own specific well, way. I mean, I think one of the problems that France has and one of the problems Macron has in terms of reimposing political stability is that they still have quite a lot of fiscal retrenchment to do. During the COVID uh, crisis, like most other Western countries, they uh, piled on a huge amount of debt. But actually since then, Britain has kind of uh, fiscally consolidated somewhat. 
in a way that France hasn't. And France has dealt with some of the effects on the sanctions that they've placed on Russia, some of the post-COVID dislocation in supply chains, and a range of other issues that have, uh, have driven inflation upward and, and kind of hit economies by throwing quite a bit more money at the economy than other countries have. Now, they still have to kind of draw down on that and kind of stabilize their their budget. They're, they're, they're way ahead of the Maastricht Treaty, I think, Philip, right? Yes, they're currently nearly 5%, running a 5% of GDP deficit, which we're outside of a recession, which we're not currently in, is enormous. Actually, it's really, really large. Yeah, it's a kind of peronist kind of uh, fiscal policy. Look, one before we move on, one more broader point, and kind of an even bigger kind of picture point, if you like, is that the whole point of this podcast is to talk about the world as it changes from a unipolar system to a multipolar system and the effects that that will have on on macroeconomics and geopolitics and the interaction between the two of them what what we're seeing now actually is i mean the 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 implicit point of that is that we're changing systems okay and that doesn't just mean the trading system it doesn't just mean the um, diplomatic system, internal uh, socio-political systems will change as well. They'll change to adapt to the new world, but they will also change because the old system, the old social contract, really, which has been in place since the 1980s at least, and I suspect perhaps even the post-war socio-economic political contract, will also change. And when you get these changes, it, it's kind of like tectonic plates moving. You get earthquakes until they reach a new equilibrium, a new stable point. So I think there's something even bigger picture at play here that it's likely that we, you know, you believe in, and I believe in fact that we will see a lot of economic dislocation. Um, we're likely to see an increase in the number of wars and serious wars and serious conflicts between great powers, which are very dangerous and destructive indeed. And as that happens, that's going to affect the domestic political situation in countries like France, but also the US, also probably China, Russia, Britain, all, all of these countries are going to be affected. So I think we can expect, even beyond the immediate cost of living crisis, even beyond the stagnation in wages that we've had, uh, you know, I think we can expect more political unrest going forward. It, it, it's a secular issue as the world shifts from one global order into a new one. And before we find a kind of uh, a, a, a new equilibrium within that new system. China's trade superweapon. Yeah, so China announced that they're um, passing their first foreign relations law, at least that's how it was sold by the Global Times, which is the, uh, I think, the English-facing publication, basically, mouthpiece of the Communist Party, as far as I understand it. They passed this uh, last week, and it looks like they're basically tooling up for a potential trade war. China, any time it needs to deal with something, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a, a, a young state in a way. Um, and if it needs to deal with something new, it, it tends to be quite spry and agile, and it just passes these laws and forms these new institutions and so on. We've seen a lot of it, especially under Xi Jinping. Um, specifically, what does it do? I mean, I'll quote the Global Times here. Um, 
divided into six chapters, the legislation stipulates the guidance and basic principle of foreign relations and specific provisions on the functions and powers of foreign relations, the objectives and tasks of the development of foreign relations, the legal system of foreign relations, and the capacity building and guarantee for the development of foreign relations. It looks like what they're doing is they're centralizing everything that would need to be there in place to pursue some sort of a, a trade war. So, so you'd, 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 you'd be able to kind of make decisions on overall strategy, and then you could actually kind of you know come up with solutions, quote unquote, to that. And then you have the legal capacity also to put them in. As force of law, um, so I think this is a big deal. It's there's no um, there's no secret where this is coming from. Regular listeners will will know. Really, the um, obviously America's been engaged in um, sanctions activity or trade protectionist activity against China, and China's be, become increasingly frustrated. It uh, it it hit out at um, Micron, the the American semiconductor company, uh, in the past few months. And now it's tooling up. I I I, I kind of liken this to um, to building a nuclear weapon. If you don't have one, it doesn't mean that you're going to launch the weapon. But you're saying that I've got the nuke now, and you've got the nuke. And if we want to launch them at each other, that's what's going to happen. And that's what China's saying with this. I I think the analogy is quite good because I wouldn't take this as pure theater. I think in one way it's a signal to say if you don't back down, okay, we're going to fight. But it's not just theater. They're, they're putting these legal, this legal framework in place, which means that if, if America or the West wants to pick a fight with them over trade, they have the tools that are necessary um, to fight that fight. Um, we can talk more about what that means maybe shortly. I, I'd note one more thing. The Global Times headline uh, was China passes its first foreign relations law in key step to enrich legal tar- toolbox and here's the interesting part, against Western hegemony. The real theme that's come up here, we mentioned some of it last week, actually, um, in relation to our discussion of China, is that China and Russia as well, but also other developing countries, are really dusting off this old Cold War imperialist rhetoric. We're hearing a lot of talk about Western imperialism, Western hegemony, and so on. Now, in some ways, this is quite ironic, because the West is actually a lot weaker economically vis-a-vis China than it has been in the past. But portraying it in this way, I think, is an attempt at unification between China and other countries that maybe haven't got, let's say, the best deal uh, in the in the post-globalized world. Well, actually, they've their countries have improved a lot to a certain extent, so it's a little bit misleading. But in terms of just the fact that you know we're you know the West is rich and they're not. So I think there's I think there's a lot of things going on here, and it's really worth paying attention to. I think it's actually exactly what you said. The Chinese have come to the conclusion, rightly in my view, that the that Washington and the the broader foreign policy elite in the United States has got its eyes firmly fixed on China. They intend to try to contain China not just geographically, but also economically and diplomatically. And therefore, the Chinese are putting in place the tools that they need to be able to fight that battle. And I think it's as simple as that. And of course, implicit in that is the signal because they've publicized it. They've tried to explain why they're doing this. They've been quite plain about why they're doing it. But ultimately, that's what it is. It's China saying, okay, we understand the way that our relation with the US and therefore 
the broader West, which takes its lead from the US, is going to go in the future. And so if that's the way it's going to be, this is what we need to be able to fight outside of the battle. And I really think it's as, it's as simple as that. And it, it, it seems to me that things are simply deteriorating in terms of relations between the US and China. It seems increasingly likely to me, unless there's some kind of blow up in China or, or maybe big failure and a retrenchment in the US itself, you know, it's possible to imagine some kind of political strife or big foreign policy failure, which brings to power a more isolationist uh, presidential administration. But barring that, or some kind of collapse in China, we're essentially locked on. The, you know, the the points of locked on, and we're all on this kind of rail line towards Cold War 2.0, and 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 quite nasty and concerning conflict. And I think. This is essentially a Chinese recognition of that, and it's allowing themselves to put in place what they need to survive in that world, the, both the legal tools to be able to res- respond to any sanctions and the, um, and the centralization they need to be able to uh, respond effectively so that you know everybody there is singing from the same hymn sheet. I think it's interesting that... You know, there was a, a, a lot of song and dance about Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, essentially America's foreign minister, uh, going to China and, and having a series of meetings there. Before he went, President Biden said repeatedly that, you know, relations would, would cool down a little bit and there would be some kind of uh, thawing of relations between the two. And then within days, you had a diplomatic uh, spat about Biden calling Xi a dictator and now the Chinese have released this as well. It's clear from the actions of both sides, forget about the rhetoric, forget about diplomatic statements. It's clear from the actions of both sides, both the US effort to hobble the US the, the US effort to hobble the Chinese economy through applying sanctions on a range of of, uh, of products and sectors and individual companies that will be crucial to the 21st century economy. And also now we see with the Chinese providing themselves with the legal tools and the centralization to be able to fight trade wars, that this is only going in one direction. Another announcement was made this week that's quite related, and it was actually kind of an amusement, amusing announcement. So Reuters is reporting that the EU uh, agrees to de-risk from China and debates what that means. So they've... <laughs> Uh, I suspect so it might mean something very different to German industry than it does to Ursula von der Leyen, right? Well, I just find it amusing that you'd make a pledge to do something before you've actually agreed on what that something is. It seems like kind of a, a backwards. It's very EU, isn't it? It's very EU. Yeah, it definitely feels to me. I, I, I don't think you could put this one quite down to kind of EU clownishness. I think this really is the EU trying to not de-risk actually to to say that they're doing it and then not yeah do it. yeah um but just yeah, to, we can expect the second we can expect the second eu package on decoupling any moment now right that's right yeah i mean you'll get it sometime down the line 2032 or something but the um but it's quite interesting to see how this how this debate is shaking out so according to reuters the the people pushing it quite hard the, the main group pushing quite hard it's the latvian prime minister 
Um, and he says that uh, finding the right stance, stance on this de-risking, again, whatever it means, is the million euro question. And uh, he's kind of reminding people of the painful lesson from reliance on Russian gas. In contrast to that, um, the, the Dutch uh, Prime Minister Mark Rudd highlighted EU reliance on China during the COVID pandemic for protective equipment such as masks and so on. And he said de-risking will be a step-by-step process. So, so clearly this is a highly politicized thing, really. I don't think you can even look at it country by country and see whose who's interests economically align. This is, this is probably what you've referred to in the past as, as a debate between Atlanticists and uh, autonomists, in a sense. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see the, the, the debate kind of take place and also go nowhere. I mean, that is, in my opinion, where this debate will go in the EU, unless there's a massive shock to the system. And I can't think what that shock to the system is, because even conflict in the South China Sea will not be the same shock to the system in the EU as the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So unless there's something that I can't think of, I think this debate is going to go into a ditch. I think we've said we've said it a million times before. And I'd say that the Europeans are now looking over at Beijing and seeing them formulate these laws ready to strike on economic issues. Europe is looking at its own economic situation, which is not good. And it's saying, yeah, we don't want to do this. So we're at the point now where we've we've toned down, even America's toned down from decoupling to de-risking. And now the EU are saying, yeah, we don't even know what de-risking means, but we're going to de-risk. So um, unless something dramatically changes, I have a feeling that this is all going to go into a ditch and that maybe this was a kind of uh, situation where the two sides built up their economic nuclear uh, stockpiles and then realized that it was mutually assured destruction. Although it's actually not mutually assured destruction, as we've pointed in the past, um, especially America, but Europe as well, is more dependent on China than China is on them. So it's actually not really mutually assured destruction. It's destruction of one and, you know, a bit of pain caused to the other, quite a bit of pain. It wouldn't be insignificant for, for China to uh, to be hit with a, with a trade war, but uh, it, they've diversified massively in terms of their exports and, and so on now since 2020. So Look, predictions are too a penny, but I think this could could all go into a ditch. But we still need to keep watching it because it's seriously kind of reaching a kind of fever pitch now, and the two sides have dug in. So I think the next um, the next year probably will be crucial here. I do not think it's going to go into a ditch, unfortunately. On the Europe question specifically, um, uh, you probably know Philip. There's a kind of uh, the the impossible trinity of monetary policy. You can either you use your monetary policy to target inflation, uh, to target a specific um, uh, value of your uh, currency, or you can have open capital accounts. You can't have all three. You have to choose two of the three. And I think in terms of European foreign policy at the moment, the impossible trinity is having the United States as the guarantor of their security, having significant trading relations with uh, Russia or China, or Russia and China, and pursuing a moralistic and uh, kind of a, pie, a spikily pious foreign policy when it comes to Russia and China. They can have two of those things. They could have the US as the guarantor of their security, and they, you know, they could have good trading relations with Russia and China, but then they can't do the pious moralizing and the kind of the, the liberal interventionist foreign policy. Or they could have that foreign policy and have the US as the guarantor of their security, but then they can forget about 
China as their major trading partner, they can forget about cheap hydrocarbons, right? It's an impossible trinity. You can't have all three. Unfortunately, I do not think this is going to go away. I think the, the European autonomists would like to move away from the US as the guarantor of the security, build up their own military power, and through that gain room for strategic maneuver to do things in Europe's best interest. And frankly, who controls Taiwan is neither here nor there for Europe, really. And if any listener disagrees with me on that thing, so it would be a huge thing, then please tweet us and tell me why I'm wrong. But I'm yet to hear a good argument for that. Um, but the problem is that Europe doesn't have the means or the wherewithal to do that. Uh, it's you know way away from having the sort of military potential to be able to have strategic autonomy. And I do not think that the US is going to give up on China at all. I don't think this is going to go into a ditch at all. I think it's just going to get worse and worse. There has been talk from the corporate sector, there's been talk from politicians about this cooling off in Washington. Actions, however, as far as I can see, speak louder than words, and this is only going one way. And especially once things calm down in Eastern Europe, it's really going to only go one way. Are the costs of that going to be really high? Yes. Is this a sensible move? Questionable. But I think that's the way it's going to go. I think we can expect more of this. I can. Ex I think we can expect China actually starting to use some of the things in the uh, the legal nuclear suitcase that you've described. Uh, and unfortunately, I think it's going to get pretty unpleasant and nasty. Deutschland for alternative. The political situation in Germany, I think, right now is flying under the radar a little bit. People aren't really paying attention to what's going on there, and there are some very interesting things going on there. Just to give some context, last week, the Alternative for Deutschland party, that's the right wing, they're to the right of the CDU, and they tend to be known as an anti-immigrant party, um, they, went, they won their first local election. Now that got a little bit of coverage, and they, you know, they, they, they basically what what it would mean is that they beat out the CDU in a conservative district, which you know doesn't mean much for German politics per se. But what it is is a signal that CDU voters are now willing to vote for AfD. Now, what's really interesting is in the national polling. Very recently, and this has only happened, I'd say, in the last month, and we've only really been able to confirm it, I'd say, in the last week, because polls can be a little bit spotty, and you need to get a good moving average in a poll to see that there's actually a trend taking place. But Alternative for Deutschland, as of today, are the second most popular party in Germany. The CDU are way ahead. Obviously, Schultz has driven the um, has 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 completely ruined the prospects of the of the Social Democratic Party. They probably won't govern again for a very long time, um, and that's not surprising. Um, all the political parties are being wiped out in Europe by the economic crisis. But it is surprising that AFD are the second largest party, at least in terms of polling. Now, so just to give some sense of that, the AFD classically used to poll at about ten percent. And that was pretty steady for a very long time. And after the beginning of the war, when the inflation really started to bite, they rose to about 15%. And a lot of people, maybe even myself included, thought, okay, that's probably, that's probably it. That's probably it. They probably get that bounce, 5%. And you know, it still doesn't really 
put them as a very you know serious force in politics. Now they're polling at twenty percent, which is above the eighteen percent or so that the incumbent Social Democratic Party are polling at, and it's way ahead of the Greens, who are only polling at about twelve percent. So I think it is now not unimaginable that the CDU go into coalition with the AFD in the next government. There'll be lots of humming and hawing, and there'll be loads of signals saying, we'll never do that, absolutely not, not happening. But when the chips are down, I think they might. Just to give some uh, sense, uh, a little bit more context on that, next German federal election uh, has to be held before the end of October 2025. So we're really only two years out. And there's every chance that between now and then, the current government could collapse. So it could be a lot sooner. And just one more point, because I think it'll open the discussion here a little bit. The alternative for Deutschland has opposed economic sanctions against Russia. And that, I think, is what's driving this. They haven't, they haven't uh, supported Russia in the war or anything like that, but they've said these sanctions are a bad idea. And frankly, from what I've you know, anecdotally seen, a lot of people, not just AFD voters, a lot of people in Germany don't like the sanctions because they haven't really worked to contain Russia and they've hurt Germany really, really hard. And the AFD is the only party, maybe there's a small leftist party or something, but it's the only party with you know above 10% vote share that's taken that stance. And they seem to be going off to the races in the polls. Yeah, I'm less certain that they'll manage to form a coalition, even if they're one of the biggest two parties. Uh, even if they're the biggest party, in fact, they might struggle to form a coalition. But I certainly think that this is the point at which right-wing popularism reaches Germany, essentially. You know, we've seen um, right-wing popularists make significant ground in um, Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, of course, where uh, currently Giorgia Maloney uh, is prime minister. She heads the government. Uh, also places like Greece. Obviously in France, we were just talking about uh, Marine Le Pen was runoff candidate against Emmanuel Macron, which meant she, was the, she had the second highest share of the vote, essentially. Of course, for perhaps understandable historical reasons, uh, Germany's always been fairly immune to this. But here we go. Alternative for Deutschland is uh, making really significant gains in the polls. If you look at the kind of poll of polls of Germany, I'd encourage readers to look at this. But the, you know, the 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 line upward is is kind of forty five degrees, if more. Uh, in terms of their popularity, that they're, they're, they're not that far off the CDU. So it's clear now that right-wing popularism is indeed a force in Germany, as it is in the rest of Europe as well. I'm less certain whether they'll be able to get involved in a coalition government. My understanding, I should probably read up on I don't know, Wolfgang Munchau and Katja Hoyer and, and, and some of the other better uh, writers on German politics in the British press. But my understanding is that they tend to be frozen out of any negotiations. But of course, that was the case in Finland as well. And, and now we have a right-wing populist uh, party uh, within government in the Finnish coalition as well. So perhaps things will change. But obviously, you know, the trend of right-wing popularism has been clear in recent years in Germany for many of the reasons we've spoken about earlier in the podcast in terms of the economics, the sanctions on Russia. And 
I don't see any reason why it wouldn't reach Germany and, and eventually break through some of that historical reticence, I suppose. I think the unique thing about Alternative for Deutschland, though, is that unlike Georgia Maloney, unlike the Finnish Populist Party, they have traditionally not been hostile to Russia and Russian foreign policy and, and Russian security interests. They have always counseled a more uh, reconciliatory uh, line with Russia. As you say, they were against sanctions and basically because it was against German national interest to impose sanctions. Uh, but in general, they've always you know, wanted to build some kind of stable diplomatic relationships with Russia and, and kind of be a bulwark against some of the instincts of perhaps the uh, centre-left in Europe and the, and the Washington consensus. Now, that is interesting. If they get anywhere near to government in Germany, then I think better relations with Russia might be one of the outcomes of that, or at least a, a thawing of relationships, perhaps, or maybe not quite as aggressive as it is at the moment. But Frankly, that's one of the reasons why I think they won't get anywhere close to government. I think it's more likely that they just probably try and get the sanctions closed down. I mean, look, the you're right what you said about them being actually in, in really in reaching distance of the CDU now. Now you, you don't want to take um, a single poll, but looking at the at the worst poll for CDU is interesting in and of itself. This is from um, uh, about a week and a half ago. The CDU polled at 24% and AFD polled at 21 Now, that's not quite representative of the moving average, but seeing a poll where there are three points difference between AFD and CDU is pretty shocking. I mean, I wouldn't have expected that. In terms of the response, I mean, I don't read German very well, maybe a little bit, but not, not very well. So I, I can't really go in and see what the kind of deep polling is saying. But I'd be really interested to know how much of this really is driven by uh, opposition to the sanctions. My gut says that a lot of it is, because you're talking about an extra 5% of voters in the space of two months are saying, nah, we're going to go with AFD now. That's a lot. <laughs> Logically, there must be some single issue, or maybe not single issue, but there, well, yeah, I mean, probably there's a single issue that's driving that. And again, from just talking to people in, in you know, the American business community and so on, there's a lot of discontent with the sanctions because it's become so clear that they haven't worked as they were supposed to. I mean, it's one thing taking the pain for a greater good, but when there's no greater good being achieved, it's just pain for pain's sake. It really reminds me of the kind of last days of the lockdowns when everyone kind of was looking at them and going, oh, what is this? Why are we doing this? But I think actually what what be worth watching for actually in Germany is the CDU opposing the sanctions. I mean, the logical thing to do here if you want to try and get some of that vote share back is take the key issue. And I wonder would the AFD, or not the AFD, the CDU be willing to do that. In terms of the coalition, I think what you're saying was probably true maybe five years ago. Now, I'm not speaking to Germany in particular. As, you, as with you, I'm not deeply familiar with what's going on in German politics. But my sense is that the, that the right wing have been a lot more normalized in Europe in the past few years. And I think the election of Maloney was the kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the event that I wouldn't say normalized the right wing in Europe but at least kind of 
made it imaginable that they they'd form uh, coalition governments. Obviously, this isn't the first time it's happened. You mentioned Finland and so on. These were kind of small tester cases, I think. I think that Europe is coming to recognize, or European politicians and policymakers and so on, are coming to recognize that the right-wing populist movements are not going away. They just do not seem to be going away. And so what happened in Italy, as I understand it, is the establishment effectively took Maloney under their wing and there were kind of, you know, I, I don't know if there were there were red lines laid out or what, but I think there was kind of a, a discussion of national priorities and um, and then she became prime minister. I think that's probably going to happen across Europe. At a certain point in democratic systems, you if, if, if there's a trend, you can't really shut it down. And if you're kind of the elite or, you know, the, the ruling class or whatever you want to call that, you just kind of manage it. You have to manage it. The circumstances force you to manage it. And so I wouldn't be surprised if in the next uh, two years there's, there's attempts to manage alternative for Deutschland eventually leading up to a coalition government between them and the CDU. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. Um, ultimately, if you look at all of these right-wing populist governments, they haven't really changed the political system. They've been, you know, they haven't been revolutionary. What's obviously driving right-wing popularism is a dissatisfaction with, I think, what David Goodhart called double-barreled liberalism, you know, social liberalism and economic liberalism at the same time, and a general discontent with the economic and social outcomes that that's created. And I think that is true across Europe. Now, none of these parties, I mean, even, even Le Pen in recent years has moderated some of her positions on things like the Eurozone, on EU membership, on migration. I mean, she was in some ways, in the in the last presidential election, a little bit to the left of Macron and and, and then some of the rhetoric she was giving. Again, she, Georgia Maloney, as you mentioned, she hasn't been revolutionary in the way that one might have expected of Liga, you know, four, three years ago even. And I suppose something similar could happen. And and perhaps one of the reasons we could say that Britain's never had a revolution is that the elites of Britain have always been quite good at bringing in uh, radical or, or, or revolutionary or populist elements into the system itself and adjusting the system so that the system stays going in, it, in its form, but it's just adjusted just enough to take into account of these people. And maybe that's what the European elites are doing. They, you know, they've done it with Maloney. Perhaps, perhaps Le Pen has moved in that direction. Maybe the, you know, the Finnish uh, popularists have as well, and perhaps Alternative for Deutschland will as well. But I would say that if they're kept on the outside for long enough, uh, you know, we should note that with all of these parties, there's nothing really truly radical in what they're saying. There's, you know, there's nothing about, as I say, upending the entire political system and. And building something anew. There's nothing about completely transforming the economic system or the or the diplomatic system. Alternative for Deutschland is kind of Eurosceptic, but I get the impression that that's kind of similar to the way that the Tory party was before Brexit. So that's something to bear in mind. Perhaps if they're not brought into the inside, then the next stage is people who really do want to tear things up. They really do want a revolution. They do really do want regime change from within. And I think it's something to, to, to watch very closely. 
are the Europeans going to manage this well by bringing the popularists and the radicals into the present system? Or are they going to manage it badly by keeping them out and really fomenting something that's much more revolutionary and perhaps much worse? We are fresh from a huge victory.